this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So, what's your biggest question when it comes to selling your company? You know, when I ask that question of other entrepreneurs, I hear things like, "How do I avoid an earnout? When's the best time to sell? How do I create a bidding war?" These questions, along with many others, inspired me to write the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. It's a field guide for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. I've taken all the best practices from the 300 plus interviews I've done for this show and distilled them down into an action plan for you. You can get it along with some gifts from my listeners when you go to builttosell.com slash selling. Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast where we help you punch above your weight when it comes to selling your company. My name is John Warlow, and today on the show, you're going to hear from Jay Gould and how he sold his business Yashi to Nexstar for $33 million. I got to come clean on something. I was over my head in this episode. I mean, when you hear Jay talk, it is a mile a minute. And I had trouble keeping up with the story, but I want you to stay with it. Pay close attention because Jay will leave you with so many value bombs and nuggets of wisdom that I think it is worth your time to stay with the conversation. I found myself overwhelmed at times just with how much information I was trying to consume. But again, maybe put your media player to point eight times speed and just take it all in because Jay shares insight after insight after insight. Here to tell you his entire story is Jay Gould. Jay Gould, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Where are you, man? You look like you're at a bar. It's <laughs> like <my> noon. <laughs> this is my basement, yeah. And I don't even drink alcohol. I used to, but I stopped. But yeah, I just, it, this is my basement downstairs. Well, if, for those who are not watching on YouTube, it looks like the classic barroom saloon with the uh, who's up up beyond the uh, on all the shelves and the uh, looks great awesome great to be uh, to be with you Jay talk to me about Yashi I understand you went through uh, kind of a transformation so I'd love to go back to the beginning what was the business in the early days yeah so um, let me just give you a little background I've started a social network years ago a dating site years ago sold those started the first video sharing site before YouTube was around 2004 sold that. Then I met my, I only say this because it brings my wife into the picture. I met my wife at the company that acquired that company. I became an equity partner in that business when I sold it. She was the leading salesperson there. We started dating. I was an owner of the business. I didn't want anybody to know. It's like, you know, you're dating one of your employees, but I fell in love with her. Um, so we we're dating. And um, I, you know, that company ended up unfortunately being sued by Universal Music. It was a bad outcome for us. Um, that company went bankrupt um, a few years later. And uh, I, I came up with this idea for, at the time, it was called Gamers Media. So we were uh, we were the largest video sharing site before YouTube surpassed us. They had executed us. They beat us, is what it is. Um, and then we got sued one week to the day after they got announced that they sold for $1.65 to Google. Then Universal Music filed a lawsuit against us, MySpace, and now what you know is Crackle. So we all got sued the same day. It was like, oh, no, right? <laughs> And uh, we weren't venture backed. We were essentially, it was a bootstrapped company. 
Um, so it didn't work out so well. We have millions of dollars in legal fees mounting and mounting. We were laying people off. It was a disaster. But I went to her and I said, look, our, you're, you have a strong skill set uh, in sales. She was really good at it and a lot of relationships. I said, and um, I have a strong, su strong suit of uh, skills in product development, right? And so like, let's build Let's build what is going to start off as an ad agency. And I knew over time we would be what's known as an ad network, more technologically driven, you know? But in the beginning, um, when we first started off, it took like the first year almost, we had no revenue. I almost wanted to give up at a certain point. I was like, Jesus, you know? Um, so we were we were chugging along, trying to get people, you know, the year before that, I, I don't know, Bolt maybe did 10 million in revenue. That was the previous company. And uh, I thought I estimated, I don't know, 20, 30%, two, 3 million. We didn't do anything. <laughs> it's just like knocking on doors, trying to figure out what our sweet spot is, what's our product market fit, all these things, you know, couldn't really figure it out. Um, so we started off in gaming, right? That's why it was called Gamers Media. And the so reason doing for that, advertising for yes. games, game websites, yes, game websites. Okay, so like World of Warcraft is a game. Well, there's mini clip. It was casual games. So we were uh, the exclusive sales team at Bolt for mini clip and RuneScape. So if you were in the US and you, and you were on there between 2005 and 2007, the ads came from us, even though you were on the website, right? So we signed a contract exclusively. Then we went to the all, all the ad agencies throughout the United States and we closed and secured those deals and we ran those ads on their websites. So you almost like a media buying shop yes. we as opposed to creative or... agency. Yes. In many ways, right? If you want to think of it from the advertising perspective, we were like media buying and placement. Okay. Um, but I, but there were companies within the industry which were called advertising networks. This is advertising.com, value click, et cetera. Fast company, you know, but fast click. Um, and I aspired to be like them, but I, we didn't have any tech initially, right? But I, but I knew what we were doing at Bolt. So when we started Gamers Media, we just contacted all the old players that we worked with, RuneScape and Miniclip. And they all said, no, <laughs> this is how we started off. I'm like, what do you mean? No. Um, but because we had those relationships previously, like Rob Smalls and those guys, they, they were like, like, you got nothing. You got no sales team. It's just you and your wife. What are you crazy? Like, no, we got to go to somebody else. So they went in other, other areas, but yeah. I went to everybody else and I lived on um, my history and my background. So I went to their competitors, the smaller sites, and I locked up over 20 million unique visitors on a monthly basis and contracts with us to do business with us. Um, these were like um, freeonlinegames.com, uh, flashgames247.com. I mean, there was just hundreds of these guys over time. Okay, so hold on. Let me just let yeah. me make sure I understand. So, so these free game sites make their money by running advertising because they're free. They're, they, yes. they, they monetize their game by running ads. You went to them and said, look, I can get you advertisers. And if you just give me a cut, I guess, of whatever... Yep. We they place on your site. Yeah. So you got these deals got in, and in, in, in total and aggregate, there were 20 million unique visitors yep. based on all of these different websites you signed up to sell advertising for at the launch. Yeah. Got it. And, and what was your cut of the media that they, that you got? We, we took on over 50% initially ad networks don't do that anymore, but we did because what I had the conversation with, with John, as I said, um, what are you, what is your average ECPM now? What's what your is average ECPM stands for? It, it basically the, the cost per thousand that they were getting paid. What is your average okay. cost per thousand or RPM revenue per thousand per page? They didn't think about RPM. They thought about it on a, on a per thousand per ad unit. If you add mm -hmm. up the number of units on the page, it tells you what the revenue is per page, right? So okay. I, I was very analytical about it. I kind of broke it down. They would share some of their stuff, screenshots, some of the early ones. Over time, it becomes social proof. Once you get the first 20 million, everybody else wants to join and it kind of perpetually starts to grow, but it's hard mm -hmm. to get the first one to sign. So I couldn't get RuneScape and Miniclip. 
Um, and what I said to them is it doesn't matter what I'm selling it for. What matters is what you're willing to take. And it should be more than what you're getting, making now with whoever your providers are. And we were able to give them a higher CPM, a cost per thousand, um, than they were receiving from the ad networks. These were the advertising.coms of the world. They were getting more what they call run of network ads, remnant ads, uh, the flashy ones you saw in the mid 2000s where it's like, click sure. here, get your free cell phone, text messages, and you know, ringtones and all that crap. We went to like Pepsi, Kraft, um, Fruit of the Loom. Um, these are the advertisers we used to work with all the time. GameStop, you know, all these companies. And we would close a deal. And this brings me to your book in a way. We, we closed deals and we did... Um, by the way, the, 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 the impetus of this, right. The, the origin of it was I created the first video sharing site. We had a very large video sh sharing website. I was known in the industry for online video and, uh, and also with the ad networks and uh, sorry, ad agencies, I should say. And, um, I always wanted it to be an advertising network for video. That was the intent from the start, but to get there, you don't start, you don't start where you end, you start where you start. Right. So I, I had to start off crawling and uh, we did weird agency-like things. We would do banners. We would do text links. We would do um, adver games. Adver and when games, you say you would do them, does that mean you them. would create them, like actually do the creative for them or just run them? Not the banners, because they would have the banners from the agencies would give us those. So the agency has the media buying planning part, and then they also have a creative agency. Sometimes it's within the same, like Omnicom or something, but a lot of times it's not. Digitas may have doing the media buying planning. And then they may have a creative agency that they also hire. The client in this case could be Nike for say Digitas, right? Um, so we weren't on that side of it. We were there because we would we managed the relationships of the websites because the agencies didn't do that. I never understood this, by the way. Like, why didn't the agencies naturally just become advertising networks? It never made any sense to me. Um, but the point of that was, I guess the, the reason why that was is an agency, as you say in your book, actually, because it's funny how your book actually talks about an ad agency as an example, right? But what they what they did is they would have a, sh a small number of clients, right? Maybe right. 10 or 20, or in some cases, two, right? Um, and there was a deep relationship with those folks. And uh, so they couldn't have 10,000 websites if they only had campaigns from two or three or five or 10 clients, right? So we would aggregate all the agency relationships and we aggregated all of the ad uh, that the publishers, the website owners. And because we had those relationships, in some cases, exclusive contracts, nobody else could even get them. We got their inventory exclusively, but most cases, non-exclusive. We take that inventory, bucket it up, go back to the agencies and say, who are you looking for? Tell us the demographics you're looking for. Uh, moms between the, female moms between the ages of you know 18 and 34, et cetera, et cetera, sure. right? And then we would sell based on that. We would create packages based on that. They would give us the assets, which could be the banners, um, but we did have a creative division within where we created something called Adver Games. We didn't invent it, but we, we were doing a lot of these. We were early on this. One of them we did was Under Ruse from Fruit of the Loom. Mm -hmm. um, we also did another one from Delhi Creations, um, which was Oscar Mayer. And that one you can still find online if you look, but they, they, you had the hands. You've probably seen these before, but they're making sandwiches. And as the levels, level one, level two go by, it gets faster and faster with the customers placing orders and you have to put them together. And, and it was fun, you know, and, <laughs> and you're, you're engaged it, it, with the brand, right? With sure. making the sandwiches, the deli creation sandwiches for, for Oscar Mars. And we were in that business and we did really well. Year one, uh, first year of revenue, 750,000 in revenue. Year two, 1.5 million, then 3 million, then 6 million. We just kept growing 100% a year every year. Um, so it wasn't a growth issue, um, that I was having, I was having an issue trying to get investors to invest because I wanted to scale faster and I needed investors. I was friends with people like Naval Ravikant, um, who now runs angel list. This is prior to that. Yep. He came to my office once in, in uh, New York city, sat down with me and is like a year or two. I was like, I'm trying to raise money and, and we we're making a lot of money. I was running the business very profitably and personally making a lot of money. 
And by the way, I started this company because I always say to people, I was out there. It's like the gold rush. I was hacking away trying to get the gold when I was the website owner, right? And then after multiple companies that didn't work out so well, I've had some exits and stuff early, but they weren't huge wins, right? And then one that was worth hundreds of millions of dollars on paper, John, and it goes to zero. Then I started another company that didn't work out in between this one. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to sell picks and shovels. <laughs> and that's the ad business, right? It was low hanging fruit. I knew I could make millions of dollars doing this. It wasn't inspiring to me. I wasn't changing the world, so to speak. Although when you are running an ad network, you are kind of proliferating free content for the web in some ways, if you want to think about how you're helping the world. But if, if I stepped out, somebody else would step in. So I don't feel like it was that revolutionary, um, but I knew that I could execute it and I knew I could do well, but I couldn't get it to that level where I can get the Sand Hill Road venture capitalists to want to invest. Naval told me, he's like, you're running a very profitable business. He goes, let me ask you a question. Why, why do you have the business? Why did you start it? And I told him, honestly, well, I, I, you know, I've had some exits and they weren't so great. And I had some that failed and I'm just looking for some more money. He goes, exactly. And you're profitable. He goes, people forget why they start companies. You start a company to create wealth for yourself and for your shareholders, right? If you have shareholders, he's like, but you already passed all that. Why do you need the shareholder? You're making money. Just keep making money. And excuse my language, but he says, just get your fuck you money and then worry about raising money. And I said, that's so funny. I said, okay, when a couple of years, he goes, yeah, in a couple of years, let's retalk. Let's talk again. Let's have another conversation. A couple of years goes by. Then I'm making so much damn money. I didn't want any investors in the business, right? And then I had some- Did you have any Did you have any investors at all? I did. Uh, I did. Okay. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about when they came in and how you, you got them. So when I sold my company to that company in New York, right? Uh, one of the guys who was a co-founder is a guy named Lou Kerner. So Lou was the founder of .TV, the domain extension. He sold it to mm -hmm. VeriSign for $100 million. Um, he, had an, he was a part of Idea Lab, Bill Gross. And um, so I don't know what percentages anybody had, but he, he made a lot of money nonetheless. Um, he ended up investing in the company a few years later. He was one of my first investors. He also when you say the company, you're referring now to Gamers, Gamers Media Yashi. Yes. So Got he it. invested uh, 1.5 million dollars. Uh, but before he pulled the trigger, a person that I met through him years before was a hedge fund manager. I don't want to na name his name because he wants to be anonymous on this. But he, he, he's a noted hedge fund manager. Managed 13 billion dollars under management at his, at his fund. Right. Great guy, um, taught me a lot in business and life as well. Great, you know, it's other thing about investors. They could also just be great mentors in life too um, mm -hmm. for people that are looking for investors. Be careful about who you bring in because you have 10 years or so usually, it was eight years in this case, with these people, they become like family, right? You I talk to my investor every single day to talk to this guy, every day. Um, and he would just counsel me on different things. I didn't always listen to everything he said, but I always took the information and in because of his experience in life you know, and business. Um, so he was my first investor, $250,000 he invested in the company, got a couple percentage points for it. Then Lou came in about a year later with $1.5 million and the valuation kept going up. The difference is when I got these guys in, I was aware of something that was called super voting rights, they call it, right? So one of my old angel investors in a previous company is a guy named Reed Hoffman. And sure. Reed gave that privilege to Mark Zuckerberg, him and Peter. Um, and so he had that. He was also an investor in Mark Pincus's company, Zynga, and he had uh, super voting rights, control stock, right? So I was aware of this. And I, when, I, when I said, you want to come in, I don't need you. I had leverage. By the way, wealth is created through leverage and equity. Just that's a key thing that people don't understand. And so what, what he always told me, the guy that I can't name name, he always said to me, he's like, listen, I want you to retain the control because I asked him for super bonus rights. He's like, I'm, I'm down with it. We're going to give you that. He goes, because if I can't trust you, I can't trust anybody. And I definitely don't know if I can trust VCs in the future in this business, right? Because because they'll get crammed down as the as the angels. Um, I don't want to get too detailed about this because depending on what the audience knows, but you should look into this. Um, investors will get a lot of different types of investor rights, right? Preferred rights. Um, these could be 
liquidation preferences. They can be accruing dividends, which come in the form of equity, which is more dilution. It could be what they call the option pool shuffle. They'll say when they're made through the investment, oh, you should set aside 20% for future employees. They tell you to do that first and then they invest versus doing it afterwards and diluting themselves as well as you, right? There's all these tricks. And he was, he was on the same page. He's like, we're just going to do this the fair and equitable way. And we're going to make sure that everybody else in the future is going to be fair and equitable because we're giving you the control. That, and now you have the control. They can't change it otherwise. And so from that first angel investment, I had control. Then Lou remained the precedent by putting in $1.5 million. And then we raised another three, uh, another $1.5 million from other um, angel investors uh, at that point, were, which were friends, Wall Street guys too, a lot of them. Um, mm -hmm. But the key was maintaining control. Um, I never needed their money but their money was leverage, go back to the leverage, so that when I wanted to raise money in the future, I had the, they had the, they could see that we were profitable, number one, and we had, we had, we had capital on the balance sheet, right? We never really needed to use it. So we raised $3 million in total. And at one point, John, we had a Silicon Valley bank loan for 3 million, which then got replaced by PNC with a $4 million loan. And it was a straight line of equity. I mean, it's really unheard of, right? Um, they usually when you say have line of like, equity, do you, mean, do you mean line of credit? Credit, sorry, like, line of credit. Yeah. Okay. So what it, okay. yeah, what it was is that most of the times they do these things like they have an AQR, right? Well, they, they look at just the quick ratios and they look at your revenues and they look at the growth of it and the deceleration, et cetera, and they can call on it. And I've had a friend and run a very large advertising network. Uh, Sequoia Capital was his investor. Don't want to name the company, right? But they, they uh, he had a, a line of credit from a bank and the AQR broke and they said, you need to pay us. And if you don't, we're going to foreclose. And they did. And Sequoia didn't ante up and give them more equity to pay it. And poof, gone. They liquidated the business. I mean, shit happens, right? Yeah, so yeah, I learned yeah. a lot over the years from this. Let me just pause you here. So super voting rights, can you define what you mean by super voting rights? So for in my case, what it was is we created two classes of stock. We had a C corporation. We had class A, class B. I was in class A and everybody else was in class B. My wife and I were in class A, I should say. And um, what we had was a 10 to one vote over everybody else. Everybody else got one vote per share. We got 10 votes per share. So I forget what the math is, but if we were only down to like 20 something percent, I still had the majority over 51% of the votes or more than 50% of the votes, which so is important for making key strategic decisions about the business do I want to raise more? Do I want to take this off? This off? And this will come up later. Uh, I'll tell you about when we sold the company. Uh, these things are important. Now you still want to get everybody's signature on everything, but when they know their signature doesn't really matter, they just vote yes anyway, right? Because yeah. it's like, do they want to be a problem child? So this, if I'm if I'm reading between the lines, and just tell me if if I've got it, I'm getting it right or not. This was important because through these various rounds of investment, you on paper own less than half of the company. No, if you. If it were I sold one the company one voting, over no. 80 some percent of the company when I sold it. So, okay. Because we so got investors later when the valuation is necessary. Because at some point that may have been the case. And I was always uh, worried about what happens if we keep raising capital. Like, I mean, that's three million is nothing in today's world, right? We could have easily gotten over. I said competitors that had 100, 200, $300 million in capital raised. I never overcapitalized the business. I was always afraid that the outcome may not be so great. And overcapitalizing just means less to go around in the future, plus all the things we talked about, liquidation preferences and everything else that they may have put in there. I never allowed that. We had offers from VCs. We had an offer from private equity and they always had these weird things. And I was told that's market, mm. uh, that's conventional. And I said, not for me, <laughs> it could be for everybody else, but I'm not doing it. Um, and in the end, I saw companies that we competed with 
that went public and you looked at the S1 filing and you looked at what the uh, stakeholders own. And I said, wow, this company is going public. And while their market cap is significantly higher than what I sold my company for, this guy as a founder owns 2% of the company. What? So he ended up making less money than I did. And you can't sell all your stock. If the founder just liquidates everything, that's a negative signal to the market. He's stuck, <laughs> right? He's stuck yeah. in a company and he has less equity dollar-wise, I should say, nominally. But in your case, you were able to hang on to how much equity? Over 80% by the time wow. I sold. Yeah. Good for you. And so you were raising from Lou uh, and, and the other angel investors yeah. at a really high valuation, I Correct. presumably. Wow. Yep. I waited. We waited several years to Naval's advice. I, and I would love to have him come on my show, but he's too busy. But I want to thank him as I want to thank you as well. Thank you. Um, because the people that um, I call you guys docents, I have a show, it's called docents, which you're going to come on the show. Um, and I say docents are people that inspire, influence, and guide others, right? And uh, they could be people in your life and they could also be public figures or authors or you know athletes or whatever. And uh, those people have an impact on you. And I felt that you had an impact, Naval had an impact. A lot of people in my life had an impact on me. I realized later that my success is built on the backs of everybody else, that I was smart enough, I would give myself credit for this, to put them in my lives, right? And make the right choices of having the right people around me, whether they're directly or indirectly in my life. And it's it's changed who I am and it's changed my outcome dramatically. You know, um, Naval's advice when he came to my office was great, which is wait get leverage. Leverage is everything. He said, uh, right. he's friends with Mark Pincus, right? Mark Pincus at Zynga, people know Farmville. Mm -hmm. he, he would take advertising and pop-ups, all kinds of wacky things and put it on there. And everyone's like, I can't believe he's putting it. Yeah, because he wanted to be profitable. So he sat down with the VCs. He dictates the terms, right? That's the key. So he waited to raise that capital. And when he did, he had leverage because I don't need your money. You can see I'm profitable. If you want to invest, it's on my terms. It's not perfectly on your terms, but a lot of the control provisions get removed. Got it. And so one of the terms that you felt was important to you were these super voting rights, in particular, yeah. Lou. Uh, was it Lou who, who helped you understand that? The hedge fund guy. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Super voting Reed, rights. Reed, Reed Hoffman is the one that really brought it to my attention when he was an angel investor in a company I had called WikiU. And uh, he, he brought it up to me several times that, and I was like, why don't I have that with you? <laughs> you <know>? And uh, <laughs> But I, it was the back of a napkin, you know, when we came up with that idea and they invested and he was a small investor within it, but very, again, another one of my docents, great influential guy in my life. Um, and just listening to the stories, learning through osmosis with sitting in a room with guys like him. And um, I used to go sit down at that. He would, you can see now, if you look up Reed, he's a VC nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. When I met him, he was transitioning out as a CEO of LinkedIn, LinkedIn yeah. and he brought Jeff Weiner in and he stepped down. And he said, um, and this is true, because one of the things he did when he invested in me, he's like, I got a question for you. It's the only question I have, uh, which is crazy. He like, made a decision in two seconds. He's like, the only question I have is, um, how important is it for you to remain the CEO of this company in the future? And I'm thinking, this guy doesn't think I could be the CEO. What the hell, right? But I was also thinking, this is a test. And uh, I really thought about it. And I was like, I don't know. Let me think about that. And he's like, okay. I said, what's more, more important to me, Reed, is really the control. I don't really care about the title the ego, the pride of all that. I don't really care. I really care about the direction of the company. I think I'm the best person suited for that. I don't know if I'm the best person to manage 200 people in the future. I've never done that. So, and he goes, it's a good answer. That's exactly why I'm stepping down to CEO LinkedIn. I go, you are? And this is before he did it. And he's like, yes. And I'm bringing a guy in. Blah, blah, blah. He tells me this whole thing. And he goes, when we got to like 50 plus employees, I didn't want to manage the people anymore. The personalities, all it's just not interesting. A lot of politics, people position themselves for their careers. 
I like a small team, 10, 20, 30 people. We build something and we get it off the ground. It's like this kernel, right? And it starts to pop. And then when it starts getting like crazy, like a bag of popcorn, I'm starting to leave. Like, I don't want to deal with this. He goes, but not everybody's like that. Mark Zuckerberg's transitioning really well. Um, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, they, they all transitioned really well. They, mm-hmm. they had a desire to do it. They learned it and they figured it out and it was fit well within their personality. He's like, it doesn't for me. And I'm not sure what it will be for you, but as long as you're open, I said, that's interesting. I don't know. And as Yashi started to grow, we sold the company. I think we had like 65 or so employees when we sold. It was definitely getting to that point. What he, what he was saying, I could see myself at hundred plus employees, probably not really thoroughly enjoying the day to day. You know, I like the beginning of the business. I love coming up with the idea, shifting the strategy slightly, the narrative, like we'll get into like we did with, with Yashi. Um, those things are really fun. But when it comes to that repeatable model, just keep doing the same thing over and over. I lose a lot of interest in that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, not, yeah. it's not my personality type. Good stuff. Okay. So let's get back into the story. So you're growing, raising money on your terms. You, you've alluded to a couple of times, uh, a sort of a shift in strategy. Tell me a little bit about that. So let's go back. So started this company in 2007. Um, by 2010, 11, uh, by 2011, we had our first child, right? We're running the business for several years now. And we go on a vacation that year. Um, it might've been a year after 2012. We go on vacation to Hawaii. We're in Koalina. And somebody said to me, you got to buy the book Built to Sell. So I said, sure, why? And they go, I think it would be great for you. I read this book and it just seems like, you know, you're a little distracted. You might want to read this book. I said, okay. And they knew my, this, this is a friend of mine. He knew my business and what I was doing. So I go to Hawaii, land, whatever, sitting on the beach. And they have these beautiful, in Hawaii, these like little coves, right? With like the jetties out there. So no sharks get in. You know? And you're just chilling. My wife and kid are just sitting in the water and I'm reading this book. I've read, no, no, no joke, John. I read the book from start to finish in one sitting. It took me several hours, but like that day, night, you know, just, I couldn't put this book down, right? So I read this book. And, and part of the reason why I think it appealed to me is that the, the character that you created in the book, I can't remember the guy's name. What was his name? Alex Stapleton. Alex. Yeah, yeah Alex, yeah. right? So he's, he's running an ad agency. <laughs> I'm running an advertising network. And the more I thought about it, I was running an ad agency as I'm reading this. I'm like, Jesus, gosh, I'm, I'm not really running an ad network. I'm, I'm really running an agency. We're doing advert games, right? A lot of them, a lot of revenue in advert games. When I looked at it though, the core fundamental thing that I always wanted to do was the video advertising. And in the book, you talk about Alex, when he had sat down with his mentor and he says, hey, what you really need to do is focus on the logos. And they created a process of how they did it. And then he went to the client and he started to, you know, and I was like, that's interesting. I go, the one thing that I'm passionate about that I understand will have massive growth potential in the future. It's not, it's not the advert games. It's not the banners, the text links. It's none of this other crap, homepage takeovers, all these customized things that we did. By the way, agencies loved that stuff. They loved it. It's probably what closed a lot of RFPs for us, right? They loved it. Um, But what was the most scalable thing was the advertisement for the video because they already have the asset created from another creative agency. They're placing it on television and internet, 30 second spots, right? And we had the capability through data targeting to be able to target uh, all over the world or locally. And nobody, as I was reading this book, these ideas are just popping through my head. Nobody was a local focused, geo-specific focus on video advertising yet. So who would the customer base be for that as I was reading this book? And I'm thinking to myself, it's a different customer base than we have now. We have large agencies in New York, Chicago, LA, Texas, right? Austin. There are all these agencies we worked with and uh, Seattle, et cetera. And um, 
it's different. I think we'd have to go and find different types of agencies if there are agencies for this, but we have to go to the car dealerships of the world. And everybody knows this part in there. In, you know, when you, when you look back and you think about the television, you're watching ESPN on cable TV, you see like the guy with his dog and he's like at the local car dealership and his last name. And it, they've had it for three generations or, you know, and all this stuff. And I'm like, why are they buying television? Nobody watches this shit, right? They get up when there's a commercial at halftime or whatever it is, and they go to the bathroom and then they come back and like, nobody's watching this. But online, I can guarantee uh, viewership. I can understand view, view through rates. It's all data-driven, right? It's all technology. What if we can convince them to do this? I go, this could be huge. We could rebrand ourselves as a whole new business and only focus on that and just forget about everything else. But it was scary. So I was reading this book and I was like, this is a scary thought. Like, I, like what if I remove the revenue and I can't capture it back? The other thing you never want to do in a business is you don't want, I'm going the opposite way. You don't want your revenues to do this. You kind of want your revenues as smooth as you can from bottom left to top right, right? So I thought about it and I said, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on online video advertising. I'm going to not focus on the other stuff. I'm going to dedicate a couple people to it to maintain what we have. I'm not going to shut it off, but we're not going to buy more. We're not going to add more. We're not, we're not pitching it to websites. The existing ones will we'll do it. We have existing relationships with tags that they've given us and we'll continue to run it. We didn't sell any more Aver games. That was over. Whatever we ran, we ran. We didn't do any more homepage takeovers, but the banner business kind of remained as like a remnant thing that we did, but we didn't sell any more of it. It was like, whatever it is, if they keep giving it to us for renewals, we'll take it. It's fine. We have two people focused on this, but we're not adding resources to it. We are focused on online video advertising pre-roll before the games load. And we're going to go outside of that. And I will say this, we got a little distracted, John. We had gamers media and I knew I wanted to go to video, but I didn't want to distract the narrative of gaming. So I created a subsidiary business called Create Reach. We'll help you create reach. And that was the idea, right? So I had these two businesses. There's gamers media, there's Create Reach. And it's like, not only do we have two businesses, we have multiple different strategies. I was like, what am I doing? Now, now I know why my buddy wants me to read this book, you know? So I'm, I'm like, this is crazy. So I, I decided um, we're going to unify the brand. We're going to close down gamers media as a, as a website, as a, as a name and entity. And we had, I had this domain for years, Yashi, Y-A-S-H-I, sort of phonetical, two syllables. There's a lot of stuff around names. If you think about eBay, Google, Facebook, you know, it goes on and on Snapchat, sure. right? It's always this two syllable thing. Pepsi, of course there's Coca-Cola, <laughs> but that's, but that's rare. If you look at branding um, and then the colors were like blue, it's the color of the internet. I'd look through all this stuff, you know, and this is all in Hawaii, by the way, right? Um, so I decided we're going to rebrand this as Yashi. And the reason for that is that for the non-gaming segment of our customer base on the advertising side and our vendors, which is on supply side, which is the website owners that were non-gaming, it it's not a it's a generic name like a like a Yahoo. And if you look at the history and the who is, they actually owned the domain at one point, which I thought was really interesting. 1996, they owned it. So I'm <laughs> like, okay, this is interesting. So short five characters, two syllables, phonetical. It's a good name. It doesn't mean anything to the non-gaming audience, but for the gaming audience, it's kind of got an Asian ring to it. Sort of feels like it origins come from gaming, right? So I think they'll be cool with it. And the others, they don't, it's an internet company, right? And that was a big risk. I mean, it, when you're running a business, you're afraid to change anything. If it's working a little bit, like why, why, why fix what's not broken? But in some ways it was broke. It was really, really difficult to raise real venture capital from, from anyone. And I didn't think anybody would be ever interested in the business because to your book's point, it was very services oriented. It was like, is it Jay and Kate or is it all the people? We needed to remove ourselves from the business. In some ways, you want to build a business that could be sold. Doesn't mean you have to sell it, but if it's worth buying, it's sustainable. That was the key. And so um, what I realized is in what your book was saying is we were very generalized. 
we needed to be much more specialized. And that's where we decided to just focus on the video. Come back from Hawaii. Another thing I'll tell you is I would always have my developers come up with, I would have a new idea. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 we're gonna, I bought this domain, shareable.com. We're gonna do this thing shareable. And, and then they have to distract them. Don't worry about this product development we have over here. We're gonna go do this. Three weeks later, I'm like, forget about that shareable thing. And don't worry about Yash, we'll get back to that. I got this other thing over here. And it's, I would do this all the time. And I grew up with my CTO since we were five, this guy, Larry. And Larry's like, one time, I'll never forget, he knocks on my door, random day, wasn't after I did anything like that. He's like, can I talk to you at lunch today? You wanna take lunch with me? I'm like, sure. On the ride over, he's like, bro, you got to stop with this. Like, stop, go, stop. I go, what are you talking about? And I'm a founder, crazy, yeah. erratic person. And he's like, there's people that are talking about want to leave. And I was like, what? Why? I go, we're chasing opportunities, bro. And he's like, I get it. I know he knows how I think, you know? He's like, you're crazy. I get it. He's like, you're the type A. He's like, but these people want to know that there's like, they, they want consistency. They're looking for comfort. They're, and I'm like, what? Like, it, I couldn't compute, you know? I was like, but you got to keep iterating and trying different things where you won't find the next big thing. He goes, but what you're doing is you're implying that this is not the next big thing. And I'm like, and this is where they work. And I'm like, oh, I never thought of it that way. I go, but be honest with you, it's not like, we're not quite there, you know? So I thought about that conversation when I was reading this book, I come back and I'm like, I can't imagine what people are going to think now. <laughs> so I go in and I could see the faces and it reminds me in the book when the one person knocks on the door is like, I'm leaving, you know, same thing, you know? And I'm like, guys, you're never going to hear me to say this ever again. I know I've said that before, but I mean it. We're changing the name of the company. And everyone's like, wait, what? I go, no longer we're going to have two names. We're going to have one name. We're changing the focus away from all this crazy different product offerings to the one product that is the most scalable product for us. It's going to be online video. And the difference between us and anybody else that's focused on online video, there was a couple of companies like Brightroll, Tremor, ScanScout. The difference is that we will focus on targeted local video advertisers. They're not focused on that. Like you don't ever see in a tag on CNN.com, a pre-roll for a car dealership. Nowadays you might, but back then you didn't. I go, we're going to get doctors, dentists, attorneys, accountants, engineers. We're going to go after all of them. I said, I know I can see on your faces. You're confused. <laughs> There's a couple smiles. Some people are like, I get it, you know, but most of them didn't, particularly my developers. I said, you got to trust me on this. I read this book. I encourage you to read it. I don't think anybody did, but I said, I encourage you to read this book, right? <laughs> I said, it's, it's changed fundamentally the way I'm thinking about this business and we got to give it a shot. And I know what you're all thinking, but we're growing. You know, we, I think we might've had, I don't know, maybe 7 million in revenue or something in that year. I can't remember what it was, six or seven. And um, so everybody thinks we're doing well. I go, but you know, we're really not. When you look at the other companies that have raised a lot of money, I don't think it's just the money. I think it's the focus. So the bright rolls and the scan scouts and the tremors, these guys, some of them went public. Um, they raised like hundred million, 70 million, but large numbers, but they're focused on one thing, right? We have to differentiate ourselves in that focus, right? As an investor, John, I have this acronym, I call it um, TTTDSD. The first T is team. The next one is traction. It's got traction, trumps everything, right? It's a lot of traction. And then there's the TAM. What's the market size opportunity you're going after, right? Then on the product side, I think, is it differentiated? Is it scalable or is it scaling? And ultimately, if you do, everybody's going to say, oh, I'm going to copy that. So what's your moat? How is it defensible? So differentiation, scalability, defensibility. When I thought about our business, along my own framework of how I make investments as an angel investor, I wouldn't even invest in my own company. Mm. <laughs> I was like, what am I doing? What we did was not that highly differentiated. We weren't scaling very rapidly. It was very manually linear scale and it wasn't defensible, right? I was like, we have to create a better product offering. And uh, your book woke me up to that quite a bit. So I got buy-in. There was a couple of people actually left, believe it or not. So some people were like, I don't like the new direction. I was like, then go. I, I get it. I totally get it. And you know, I'm happy to be a great reference for you wherever you go. I'm, I'm always like that with everybody. I was never trying to trap people into working for me. She want to work for me because you, you want to work with the company, understand the vision and what we're trying to do. If they wanted to leave, 
by all means, happy to have you leave because you don't want bad culture, right? Um, but you know, there's concentration risk that we had. We had uh, reading your book, you talk about concentration risk. We had customers that were 20%, 25%. It's like, no, my wife would come to me and say, after I read this book, she's like, we got this deal, blah, blah, 700,000. And I'm like, look at the revenues that they owed us from previous months. I'm like, no. What do you mean? No. I was like, tell them we could do 50. She, what are you talking about? And I was like, it is what it is. I go, I'm telling you, concentration is a big thing because when we go to sell the company someday, they're going to look at the books and they're going to say, oh, this is an agency, right? Like you got 40% of your revenue from one customer. I'd rather not have the revenue. She goes, but we'll make a lot of money. I go, yes, we'll make a lot of money because we own the majority of this business, but you'll never get out of this business. You'll be a prisoner to this business. And I don't want to be. I want to be able to exit the business when I want, not that I'm going to, but when I want to, I want to have that option. And the concentration risk of customers and suppliers on the supply side for the websites was always a real focus of mine. If you had a website that had a lot of traffic, I couldn't take it on in the earlier days. We had to grow over time very strategically. Um, so that transition was a very difficult transition that we that we did. And it took us about a year to complete. Um, and that was in 2011, 12. I can't remember exactly when we did that. I think it was like 11 or 12. It might've been 12. And then um, by 2015, we sold the business to Next Star Broadcasting. And so I always, I always, the other thing I want to just point out is I thought about, because your book told me to, it's, it, think about who your potential buyer is. If you could, um, I'm going to write a book, by the way, and, and uh, not related to this, but I'm writing a book. And another author I'm friends with said to me, you write the title of your book, right? And your subtitle, that's your focus, your premise. It's interesting thing. I never heard anybody else say this. He goes, write your best Amazon review that you would love to see. Hmm. And in that review, what are they saying is so great about this book? What do they love about it? Then you, then you start to write in the, the, the subject matter of the different ideas and stories and piece them all together in a table of contents. He's, I was like, that's interesting. He goes, so you start with your beginning and your end, you fill in the middle. I was like, you think about my business, the same thing. We had a premise, we had a target audience, all this kind of stuff. The substance of the business is the middle, right? Running it, scaling it, less concentration, all this kind of stuff. And then the end is who is your buyer? And the buyer isn't a particular company. It was a, it was a subset of a type of company. And for me, it was old media. I was like, I don't think we're going to sell to Google or Facebook. It's possible, but they have these capabilities. And there's way sexier businesses that they're connected to through VCs that probably invested in their companies. It's like an inside baseball thing. And I'm in New Jersey. I'm not in the Valley, right? I said, so how and who would, would be the buyer? And I thought the local would be great. So I said, we'll go after local because there's a huge old media sector. This is television broadcasting, cable, there's print, there's outdoor, out of home, et cetera. There's so many of them that know they need to have a digital strategy. They don't understand what that needs to be or how it needs to happen, but they have relationships with the local advertisers already. So next our broadcasting ended up being the buyer, as we know, but they had 650 salespeople selling in um, 150 markets throughout the United States. And they had all the advertisers. So we bring them a technology platform. All you got to do is fill in to the platform, use the technology, take that. And you can target locally for your local car dealership that already buys $2 million in advertising a year from you or something. What is Nextar? I, I don't actually know what they do. So you said they there had are lots of they, salespeople. What are they selling? They're a television broadcasting company. So in a way, they're like a franchisee, even though it's not what it is. So the FCC has these licenses for TV broadcasting, which is crazy when you talk to the founder of Nextar because he's like, it's all for monopolistic reasons. You can't have more than 50% in the market um, for television. But he laughed and he's like, but Facebook's got more than Google's got more. That's why he loved the internet. He's like, I could become a monopoly in digital, but you know, but for television airways, um, what audio, how much of the audience do you have? And so what they are is they get a license from Fox, CBS, NBC, et cetera. And in certain markets, that's not actually Fox. It's run by Nextar Broadcasting, Sinclair Broadcasting, et cetera, right? These are 
um, they call them uh, broadcasting companies. So they've got these 650 sales reps selling dentists, 30 second, 60 second spots on TV. And by buying you, they had the ability to add another offering to their their That's kit right. effectively, a 60 second ad. In... We can get into that too, but they didn't ever do it. Which is oh, interesting. So they buy me and it was this great idea. I think I sold them on the idea. Um, I guess I was a good sales guy, but I sold them on this idea that this would be really well. It just fits right in. All we got to do is, well, then the problem was once we sold, um, I can say this, I guess, but once we sold, I was on these calls, right? With the station managers and they used to call us the Yashi station. <laughs> so funny. And I'm like, station, what are they talking about? But they, you just fit right inside their, their cog in the wheel, right? So I'd get on the call and, and uh, they would do a roll call, every single person. And they would, they were so funny, John. They would like, these guys would go on and be like, this is John from Cincinnati. Like they sound like they're on a radio and I'm like, what's going on? Here? And then they were like, uh, Yashi, you there? You know, the guy from next door. And I'm like, yeah, it's Yashi. <laughs> it's like, what do we do? And I have to wait for the roll call. And it would take five minutes or so, maybe 10 minutes for everybody to say that they're there or not there. They would like name me, you know, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, are there? No, 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 Jeffrey's not here yet. Okay, we'll get back to Jeffrey. I'm like, oh my God, what are we doing? And then Perry would come on, the CFO would come on and they would do this whole thing. And then top sale managers would say, is there anything we need to know about in certain markets and all this kind of stuff, you know? Um, so I thought it'd be a top-down approach. Like we now have this, we want you to sell it. And he wanted it to be a bottom-up approach. So those calls, he's like, I need you at the end of these calls to talk about the Ashi offering so they can adopt it. I was like, wait, you're the CEO and the founder of Nextstar Broadcasting. It's a $5 billion company. Just freaking tell them to do it. <laughs> and he goes, it doesn't work that way. I'm like, what do you mean it doesn't work that way? Roll heads if they don't do it. I don't understand. He goes, no, no, we need them to buy in. I was like, dude, I, I, you want me to sell 150 plus TV station managers on the Yashi offering? You bought it for $33 million in cash. What are you nuts? Just tell them to do it. <laughs> and he's like, it doesn't work like that. It's a very political organization in many ways. And I think I found from other friends that sold to uh, large corporations, very similar kind of scenario. So I don't think it's unique, you know, that I dealt with. Um, about a year of this, I, I had enough of it. I was like, I'm out of here. I can't do this anymore. I was like, I'm done. I call, I, I, call, I have my army on my back. I call Mercy. <laughs> I can't, I'm not trying to convince anybody. Did, did you have an earnout or like what was nope. keeping you there for a year? And I said to them during the, in the negotiation, I said, um, another thing I'll tell you is that we, 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 we had a valuation on a prior round, $1.5 million on a 75 plus million dollar valuation, pre-money valuation the year before we sold, the year before we sold. They sold it. And uh, that's what I said earlier in the interview. I, I said, um, controls everything, right? We had an offer from Nextstar for like 20 million the first time. I was like, no freaking way, not doing it. And they wanted to do an asset purchase, not a stock purchase. So the asset purchase as a C corporation, which means they would have given us $20 million to the corporation. The corporation now has, has to pay tax, corporate tax, which I think was like 34% at the time. And then whatever's left is distributed as a dividend to the shareholders. Obviously I'm the largest shareholder, but I was like the math and economics on this, you look at the, and your book talks about this, actually. I think he says, you know, um, what do you think he could sell the company for? What do you want to sell the company for? Right. When he did the math on the earnings and the multiple, it came out to like 500,000 in your book. Right. And he says, well, what do you think you need? He goes, I wouldn't do it for less than 5 million. He says, then you got to get yourself to a position where that 5 million is divided by the, a, a number that makes sense for the multiple. And that's the, that's the earnings you need to get to. So I fundamentally understood that even reading the book. And I, I remember thinking about it at the time, I was like, okay, it's a few years before we sold the company. I definitely don't want to sell the company right now. It wasn't going to change my life <laughs> um, because it's all about how many years of your current income in the company that you're providing yourself would that solve for. We ended up selling for 
six times the earnings the year before we sold the company. We did five and a half million in revenue. Six times that was like 33 plus change. And uh, five, sorry, just to be clear, five and a half million of revenue or five and a half million of EBITDA. EBITDA. Five and a half million in EBITDA. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and the way it was structured, um, I, I treated the company like a dry cleaner. I took my quarters every month. <laughs> so I bonus myself on a quarterly basis, um, as well as you know the shareholders. And it um, was making a lot of money running the business. So when I was sitting down to give me his offers, I called up Perry Silk and I said, it, it doesn't make sense for me to, to do the numbers you are, because this is what I made last year. And I go, so, so you have to just like, think about this. Like, why would I sell what I could just make in the next, and I'm growing hundred percent a year. Like I could just make that in another year or two. He goes, well, what if you don't? I'm like, well, why are you buying it? <laughs> if you think we're not going to grow, I know I'm going to grow. And if you're telling me you don't think so, then that just, that's not even real because you wouldn't want to buy it. Right? So it was a real conversation. He's like, let me put you my pencil. It comes back, talks to executives, come back. And they're like, okay, we could change it from a, a stock, a, an a, a asset sale to a stock sale, which in that case, he's buying the stock of the company, also uh, eliminating the liability that you would sure. have owning, right? There's some carve outs for liability. There's some fundamental reps you have to have in a transaction when you sell for that kind of money for fraud. We didn't commit any fraud, so I had nothing to worry about. Um, but in terms of like receivables or anything that doesn't get paid, they, they can't come back to you on this kind of stuff, right? Um, or if there's something that you just didn't even know you were in violation of, but it wasn't fraud, they took on that risk, you know? Um, and there were some tails and tail insurance and all these other good things. I don't want to get too too much in the weeds on this, but um, but yeah, at the end of the day, he sharpened a pencil, came back, says same purchase price, but a stock. I said, that's better. That's not right. <laughs> I said, we had a $75 million valuation last year. He goes, well, they just bought one point something percent of your company for 75 million. I'm buying the whole damn thing. He's like, so I tell you the price. He was like really like, you know, type A. Um, nobody tells Perry what to do. Right. And then I was like, all right, well. I can't do it. I don't know what to tell you. I go, I have other offers, which we did. Didn't love the offers. We had an opportunity to sell a large percentage to a private equity firm with some money off the table, infusing some capital in the business. But the thing is, I would have had to keep running it for who God knows how long, right? What were they valuing at the private equity group? 75 to 100, somewhere in that range. And so we take 30, $40 million off the, uh, in investment and take 20 million off the table. It's like, I go, Perry, I could get money off the table and still run the company with a second bite at the apple. Now to your point, he eventually got to the point where it was over $30 million as a stock purchase, which is net, net more money in my pocket. It's a good deal. Others were still pushing real hard on the asset crap. And I was like, that, that's not going to work, you know? And they do that because of liability um, reasons and stuff. Um, so they could have offered me the same as an asset and I netted less, right? But the point that I'm making here is that the control stock was everything because at the end of the day, when I finally just decided, I think we're going to do this, I went to my wife, didn't tell my parents or her parents or anybody else. I said, I think we're going to do this. I'm going to pull the trigger on this. We're going to go down. Once you do that, it's like diligence really starts, right? It takes about a month or two. Once, once you've really decided I'm going to accept the offer, no shop, et cetera, right? Um, got to that point. And uh, I said, I think I'm going to do it. I said, we're definitely going to do this, right? So we go down this path. We decide we're going to, we're going to go down, you know, accept their offer. Um, and, and, and then we did. And we went down this path and it was like this diligence. And I got to tell you, like, it's very stressful when you decide we're no longer shopping and talking to anybody else. This has to work mm -hmm. now, right? Because now it's a big failure to everybody else that you were talking to. You can't go back crawling on your knees. Because you signed a no work. shop, which so Correct. you couldn't keep negotiating with anybody else. That's okay. right. And you don't want to signal to your employees. You don't want to signal to anybody that this is happening. I mean, obviously my executives know, but nobody else understood it. Um, my investors were aware of it. But when the deal comes down and I finally go to the investors and I said, and Lou was a very good friend of mine. I just talked to him this morning. He's still a good friend of mine. Um, I went back to everybody and everybody says, I think one of the guys was a chairman of Bank of America as my investors. And he's like, you got to do it. It makes sense. Just do it. And I was like, I go, you're out, you're not in the money. He was on the $75 million round. I go, but you have non-participating preferred, which means he gets his money back. 
I said, but I feel bad. So I'm going to give you a 20% premium, all of you in the round. My cousin was in that round. He's a surgeon. I said, I'm going to give a 20%. He goes, you don't need to do that. I go, I'm going to do it because it's just the right thing to do. You guys invested a year ago and I'm selling for half the price. You know, mm-hmm. I go, what are we doing? I go, yeah, I got to give you some return on your money. So in that round, I gave out of my own pocket, I wrote a 20% check, 20% on top of whatever they invested um, when, I, when, when the deal finally got completed. But when I called them all, everybody's like, of course you got to do it. Of course you got to do it. Then I called Lou. And Lou says, I'm a little conflicted. I said, well, what are you conflicted about? It's the only guy that said this to me. He's the closest one, right? I was like, what's going on? He's just being honest, you know? I'm conflicted because I have two hats. So let me put on, which hat do you want to put on? My investor hat or my friend hat? I said, uh, tell me whatever perspective you want to tell me. He goes, all right, so as an investor, this is a terrible deal. I go, yeah, absolutely. He goes, as a friend, I think you have to do it. I go, so which hat are you telling me? He goes, both. I'm like, you're not giving so, me any advice here. Okay, so let me get, let me get uh, a word in edgewise here. <laughs> when, when you're talking about... As an investor, it was a terrible deal. You'd done a round, uh, you've gotten, including your cousin and you know, all these people to buy into a round valuing the company at $75 million. Yeah. And then you've got this next offer for $33 million, less than half the, the, right. the price. Um, and so lose like, as an investor, this is terrible. You could do better than this. That's right. But as he a friend- and he says what? to me, he's like, Jay, we've been through this together. We got sued and went out of business. I previously sold the company for hundred million. I think you got to do this for your kids. At that time I had two kids. I have four now. He's like, you got to do this for your family, for your kids, for you. But as an investor, I'm just going to tell you as a prudent thing, I, 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 I can't support it as your investor, but I support it as your friend. I go, so which hat are we going with? I'm so confused because he had limited partners in his fund. He's like, this was a big deal for his fund. It was a, it was a small fund, $15 million fund. He's like, I had the bylaws in my funders. I can't put more than 10% in any given investment. You are by far the largest investment. I gave you the 10%. He's like, I would have given you 20% if I could. He's like, because he loves me as a friend and all this and believes in me. And he's like, but I was pushing this as this is my, this is my, he's leaning in on me. He's like, this is my big investment for the fund. He's like, and I was hoping you'd go for hundreds of millions or more. And I'm like, I can't say no. And he's like, no, I get it. I think you should do it. I go, okay, so you're telling me you should do it. He goes, as a friend, <laughs> you screw me up. I'm like, could you cut it out? Dude? And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, he goes, I, overall, I think you should do it. I was like, okay. So it was interesting though, because they were all going to support it and sign the docs. Um, but if they didn't, I had the right to do it anyway, right? Because of that. The, the, and I think even the ones that maybe have otherwise, that maybe have ex- exercised their right to say no, realized that's not going to go anywhere anyway. So why even do it? So it's really important to have that control for that reason. The super voting yeah. shares that we talked about earlier. And by the way, I just want to tell you something. I looked really smart about three months later. We sold the company for 33 million and we had companies that were public companies that were in our space. Tremor was one of them, Scan Scout, I believe, and a couple others, right? And a couple months later, John, they all crashed. The ad tech market crashed, not the whole market. This is early 2015. We sold January 30th, 2015. A few months later, if you look at the charts of these guys, they all crashed. Everyone's like, wow, you timed that perfectly. I was like, I was talking to these guys in 2014, so I didn't time anything, but I, I hear you. It looks like I'm smart, right? Then Trump comes into office, decides I'm going to do tax cuts. Everything starts booming in the stock market. And it's like, now you look like an idiot, right? Then 2020 hits and everything crashes. And everyone's like, whoa, man, thank God you don't have that business no more. And I'm like, I know. And then they print more money than we could ever imagine. And I think I could have taken that thing public as a SPAC today for probably a billion dollars plus. With the growth trajectory of our revenues, I think we would have been a billion dollar company today. But so you're smart, you're dumb, you're smart. It's timing is everything in terms of value, you know? Yeah, it's uh, it sure is. I've got so many questions. I, I got to start though way back sure. with 
the decision to go all in video advertising. And so I just want to understand this prior to Nextar acquiring, I understand how Nextar had salespeople selling, uh, you know, the doctor's offices and the car dealerships. I, I understand that, but before the Nextar acquisition and you decided to focus on video advertising, help me understand uh, what that would look like. So I would look at an ad on CNN, let's just say, or YouTube and pro- yeah. or, or YouTube, okay. And prior to watching the content I want to watch, I'm served up an ad. Correct. And and you're the one who would have who would have made that possible. Is that That's right? right. Yeah. Okay. So you would have gone to a brand and said, I, you know, I've got relationships with all of these uh, website operators, these eyeballs. That's right. And I can get you placed and insert your brand in front of women 25 to 54. That was basically the, the the business model. Yes, initially it was very much very manual in that in that sense. But as we started to grow and we started to build technology that automated that process a little bit, so we built something that was called a demand side platform DSP, and we were the first, I think maybe the only DSP for local video. So we were a DSP for local. So over the years, had built a lot of relationships in advertising, ad networks, friends. Um, that were running competitive businesses in some case, they're frenemies, right? Some cases and other cases, they weren't competitors at all. They just ran an advertising business. And particularly when we focused on online video, they may not have even had that inventory, right? But over time, everybody started to get into online video. It's just a massively fast growing secular growth trend, right? Within the sector. Um, what we built was this technology that through APIs and otherwise, we connected to all the different exchanges and we could see all of their inventory instantaneously when an ad is loading. So we would, in our on our side, we also bought data. Let me just take a step back. A friend of mine, Andy Monfried, ran a company called Lodemy, which is one of the first data targeting companies. Blue Kai was another one. Um, LiveRamp, uh, Orrin Hoffman. So these guys had these data companies. So they would go to websites and say, can we drop a tag on your website, collect audience data? Um, and that would be based off of browser settings, behaviors, et cetera, right? So, psycho, psychographic and demographic behaviors and stuff like that. And they would capture all this data and then they would go to us and they say, we can pair up this ad view right now. So you loaded a page right now. They can pair up that ad view as it's loading and see that that particular cookie of that user matches up with all these data sets. And then we can bid based on the user, the data sets, geography, et cetera, right? Geography was very critical to us, but it's not just the location, obviously. It's everything else. It's who is the person? What are the behaviors? Are they in market to buy a car, et cetera? How do I know? Because they were on Toyota.com or Edmunds or whatever it is in the last 24 hours. You have 72 hours maybe to see it in that purchasing decision, right? And every product has a different um, time horizon for, for that type of stuff. And you, these are just statistical things that you have to know, and you can set it up in your system for that reasoning. But so the point was, we built this technology now that there's an evolving ecosystem of these ad networks, one more point, let me just roll, rewind and say, 2007, there was like 50 advertising networks. When I sold the company, John, there was 2,500 plus advertising networks. It was getting massively saturated. Margins were compressing a little bit. I can see the writing on the wall that this is going to be very difficult to compete in the future because again, back to the DSD, you have to keep reinventing yourself, pivot, adapt, evolve. And if you don't, whether that's the narrative, the story, or the technology, you will be left behind in technology if you don't, right? Everything continually evolves, right? And so I started to see that we have to be really competitive on the tech over time to keep differentiating ourselves. We have to keep being 510X better than everybody else at what we're doing. Um, and we were already massively scaled by the time we sold it. And not revenue, but 
in inventory capabilities. We were seeing 20,000 ad views per millisecond on our platform. We had hundreds and hundreds of servers. Okay. So just this is my, this is my ignorance coming through, <laughs> but if I'm YouTube, aren't like, doesn't, doesn't Procter and Gamble call up sure. YouTube and yes. say, I'd like to run an ad for Huggies, uh, Pampers or whatever yeah. in, yeah. in, and can you put it in front of a hundred million eyeballs and I'll write you a check for whatever. Doesn't, doesn't Procter and Gamble call you up YouTube directly and just just buy that advertising. So they have a self-serve platform and the agency of record for, for PNG will, you know, can go into the, their platform and they can just place their ads through Google yeah. AdWords. Right. We had uh, an advisor to our company. His name was Gokul Rajaram. They call him the godfather of AdSense. He developed that entire system. So he worked with me and helped me just advising and stuff over the years. Great guys. Now I think it's square and he was at Facebook after Google. Um, so I understood the way he talked about it was Google sells advertising in buckets. That's, he said, think of it as buckets, keywords, as we would think of it as, right? It's intent-based advertising, You at least on google.com. You type in something and then they show you ads based on sure. what you've uh, said. In this case, it's, it's not the same way. It's based off of your behavior, right? And so is YouTube. So some of the users, they, uh, they, they're cross-pollinating the user that was on Google. They understand they've marked that user. And then when I go on YouTube, if they're logged into Gmail, they can see them here, there. When I log into the different platforms, they can see them cross-platform in a different stuff. So they have great targeting capabilities, but they don't have 100% sell-through rate, believe it or not, right? They have massive amounts of inventory on YouTube and they can't sell it all out. So they're working with folks like us and other companies like ours to try to fill in what they call the unsold inventory. Otherwise, they show remnant ads, which are ads that it convert to um, not a brand ad, but they'll convert if it, if it converts, I should say. They'll keep showing these cost per acquisition um, advertisements that if they convert, they make money. But if so, those are lower CPMs because they don't they have lower conversions, and they're they're the best in the industry, obviously, to to figure out how they do the conversions. Okay, so so Yashi was working with some of this un, unsold inventory. You would be working with brands. They would they would use your self serve. Uh, interface that would allow them to pick the markets they wanted to reach. And then you would serve up their ad to that, to those audiences. Well, we didn't quite get there on the self-serve. I was talking about Google on the self-serve. We okay. had that capability, but it was much, a lot of handholding, even when we sold the company and the buyers were well aware of it. We're like, look, we got to get there, but we're not quite there. So, okay, it was so very, you're still talking yeah. to human beings and yes. saying what audience Signing do you want to reach? Orders. Yeah. 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 Got it. Totally. Got it. So there's an manual component to it with the potential to be fully scaled. Correct. The difference Got was it. between this and other um, product lines that we had is that if I closed you, let's say you're an agency, you give us a tag, you could then continually pump stuff through your tag and we'll find placement for you within our system. Um, so we have to land you, we have to schmooze you, whatever it is to get that deal. Once we get that deal and we got the tags coming from you, it's as simple as them just like sending an email. It's like, blah, 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 or logging into our system and doing it. But, but to come to us organically and just sign up and start placing ads, we, we never really got there for that. That was the holy grail, but there's very, very few companies, Facebook, Google, a couple of them actually have that going on. So what's confusing to me is how you became so profitable. Like, I can't remember. Maybe I was deducing it from something you said. Fifty percent margins, yeah, gross profit. Gross profit margins, and so yeah. your what was your revenue when you went to sell? Uh, the year before we sold, it was over twenty-five million. The year after, it was over thirty-six million. Okay, so so you're twenty-five million dollars in revenue, and you're putting more than five million to the bottom line. Yep. 
that sounds crazy to me. Like that sounds incredibly profitable. Well, to, to Naval's point, like why do you even want to sell it? Just keep running it. Because we were growing it. Like I think the year we, the year before we sold it was like a 75%. We were decelerating a little bit, right? And it was because we had some transitional things. The year we transitioned, I remember Nextstar looking and they're like, your revenues went from 2.9 to 3.5. What happened? I said, this was the pivotal moment. So, so I read your book. I was like, it was, a, it was tough. But look at the growth after that it accelerated, and then it started to decelerate a little bit, just because just purely because of competition in the market. But it was decelerating a little bit. Got it. Got it. Got it. Well, congratulations! I think that's awesome. That's incredible. <laughs> it does beg the question, though. So I guess you had there were really three roads to go down. You had this $75 million valuation, so you, you could have continued to raise money. Presumably, yeah. it wasn't hard to raise money. You were very profitable. Right. You had all these investors, including fancy brand name people, throwing checks at you all over the place. So like that could have been a road. You could have just continued to remain yes. independent, raising more money and blah, blah, blah. Presumably, the other road you could have stayed on was to just keep cashing the checks you mentioned. Yes, you, you, I have a friend that did that in ad tech. Yeah. You had the quarters of the dry cleaner. You could have just keep, I mean, 5 million bucks is a lot of money every year to- <laughs> and which By now it would have been a lot more, a lot more. Yeah. yeah right. But you could have just re probably remained- 10 to 20 million roughly these days it would have been. Yeah. Yeah. The 80% shareholder of this company and just basically declaring dividends yeah. every day or every quarter or whatever. And then you have this, this option in the middle, which- for a lot of people listening will be like, man, like this dude left a lot of money on the table. Correct. Although, I mean, $33 million is a massive amount of money on any Hundreds of possible <laughs> measure. But there are people going like, why on earth did this guy leave so much I can money? tell you the reason for that. And, Go. and it's, I got tired. Mm. I called mercy. Um, I ran a business from 2004 to 2007. This is a tough thing to swallow, but I never cried about it. I never was what was me. There was no self-pity here. And I'm not looking for it now either, but I built the business was first to market in the business. There's an old saying pioneers have arrows in their back. I got a lot of arrows behind my back here. Um, YouTube basically copied what we did. Um, they started off as a dating thing. And then they think they pivoted seeing like what, what I was doing, what Vimeo was doing, but I was the first one to do viral video embed. So you take the code, you copy and paste it. Now the video is embedded onto a third-party website. First website to do that. Um, shortly thereafter, within months, other people started to do it. I couldn't understand why nobody was doing it before I did that. And I thought, well, there's got to be a reason. Maybe it's not profitable. So I modeled this out in spreadsheets and figured it out. I was like, that is profitable. I don't understand. Like, why isn't MTV or Viacom? And I got the opportunity to sit down with Wendy McGrath, the CEO of MTV, and all these people, Sumner Redstone. And they, we've had these discussions because they were looking to buy Bolt before Universal sued us, right? We were sitting there. Yeah. Yeah, guys. Keep going. I was going to say, so I sat in a room with like the top executives at these large media companies when the company was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And I owned a third of that business with Aaron and Lou. We all had a third each. So I'm sitting there knowing on paper I'm worth over a hundred million dollars. And then you get a lawsuit in the mail, poof, it's gone. And I said, I don't want that to happen again. I have the offer on the table right now. This is what Lou was saying. You have to do it. I wish you didn't have to do it, but you have to do it. Because if I say don't do it, and then next week you get a lawsuit in the mail, you're not fundable and no one's buying it until you can clear that out. And if you can't, you're dead. He's like, I don't want that to happen to you. So you got to do this. It's a shame because I wish you would have had a higher offer right now if we had more bidders, but you, you got to take it and you can't go back to the people that were, it's like, a, it's a tough situation. It's like, we went down a rabbit hole with these guys. 
And I decided to sign the LOI when, when I got the position of where we got to. Um, could I have just continued to negotiate? They could have pulled their offer and who knows what it's unravel. And I was like, I, I got I to gotta go with this. And I felt good. It was something I felt. I've always gone with my instincts too. And when I sold to Bolt, um, I had offers to sell that video sharing site for millions of dollars in cash. And I said, no, I'm going to take the opportunity to come and partner up with Lou and Aaron. Aaron created Bolt.com, which was the first social network in 1996. So we basically invented social networking. And Lou started .TV with, with Bill Gross. These are, I come from like no pedigree, John, right? I, I went to Rowan University. It's a college that no one's ever heard of. In fact, I transferred to two other different colleges prior to that, you know? Um, wasn't a great student in, in elementary school, uh, in high school, BC student, right? I always felt like I wasn't that smart. What I realized is I have a different type of intelligence. As I got older, I started to understand. I'm a pattern recognition person. Um, I, I'm a high EQ, lower e IQ, like a lot of founder friends that I have are very similar, right? But when you when you meet founders, you're like, yeah, we totally connect. And when you meet other people, you're like, I, I don't connect so much, like dinner parties with my wife and stuff. I'm like, these guys don't talk my language, doctors and whatever. I'm like, okay. No, they were the smart kids in school, you know? So I just, I, you know, I just felt like I had to take this offer because if it poof disappears, I was totally fine with the first couple of companies not working out. And I never looked at it like I lost something because I never had it, even though it was on paper. But this, this was there. The offer's there. Take the offer. Don't take the offer. You got to live with the ramifications. And at that point, I was getting a little older. I think we sold that. I was like 35, 36 years old, something like that. Um, the first time this, this happened was years before I was in my late 20s. I was like, I got a whole life ahead of me. Now I'm 42. I got no energy to go through this stuff again. So it's like, I don't know. I don't think I, I don't think I could have, I don't think I could have recreated it. It's like timing is everything in the world and life. And it was just, everything was just happening. And I was like, I got to take this offer right now. I know it's not the best offer. And I could look in the rearview mirror and say, oh, what it could have, should have, I could have been public company today with a hundred million in top line plus probably a billion dollar company in today's valuations with interest rates where they're at. But I didn't know any of that in 2015. I was a young guy, didn't understand economics and finance and the money printer is going to keep going for the rest of the time. And they're just going to keep spending and keeping interest rates low, which just pumps valuations up. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're running a company, I can just tell you that your valuations are only going to go up over time because the dollar is going down in value over time. That's what's really happening. The prices aren't going up. The dollar is going down. I didn't understand any of this stuff back then. Right. So I don't have regret. I don't have regret. I do have the understanding and knowledge that I probably would add a higher value today, um, but you can't regret it. You got to live with what you did. It is what it is. So many questions. The when when you had you said on paper a hundred million dollar you know personal net worth because of your share yeah. in the video sharing website. What was the name of the video sharing website? Bolt.com. B O L T.com. Got it. So you're you're a shareholder along with Lou and yep. others in Bolt.com, and on paper it's a hundred million dollars. And then in this case, Nextstar comes along years later, lots of water under the bridge, writes an offer of thirty three million dollars to buy your company. And you mentioned that this time it's different. And and I'd be just curious to know what was different because it sounds like both of them were on paper; they weren't. So what was it about, about the next star offer that made we it didn't so much have more an real offer to Yeah, we didn't have an offer to sell Bolt.com, like a definitive offer, as they call it. We had okay. a lot of discussions. We were meeting with, like, we went to CNET uh, out in California. And actually, it might have been uh, Seattle, but we met Real Networks, uh, CBS, Viacom, 
MTV within, right? So Sumner and them said, oh, go meet with Wendy McGrath. That's the music video thing. And then we started off with music video codes previously. It was called music video codes uh, before Bolt. Um, okay, so you didn't, it, did, it yeah. wasn't a definitive you know, offer on paper with the number it was, there. What it is, is it's extrapolation, John. We looked at yep. what is our number of unique visitors? What are the number of unique visitors for, for YouTube? They sold for this divided by that. That's the, uh, the exit per user. Multiply that time to use. Holy cow, we're worth a lot of money on paper. And we had a um, we had a bank. I think Savian was our bank uh, banker. Uh, this guy John Lambros, and um, you know, a very noted banker in the industry. People know who he is. He's done a lot of great deals. And when you looked at the, we talking to the, you know, to our advisors. Yeah, we were worth a lot of money on paper, but you're yeah, not worth anything, yeah. as my dad says, until someone pays you. Right? It's like it's not it's only worth what someone's it, willing to pay. It's uh, I've heard that before from founders that that once it's, I've heard it actually from a choir saying you should write, even if you don't think the owner is going to bite on the offer, write it down. Cause yeah. there's something Anchor. quite powerful about seeing your life's work, somehow someone else validating it to the point yeah. where they're willing to actually write a check of, with six, seven, eight, nine zeros on it. It's, it can be quite intoxicating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, when it was when it was legitimate and it was sitting in front of me and it was multiple offers were coming back and forth to these guys they were hot but let me tell you the story how we sold it so we uh, we hire a bank um and he had a, an event that he was hosting in new york city and he's like i want you to come to this event i want you to meet with some investors and there's like a stage and you know fireside chats and all this kind of stuff um so i go in in the morning and he's like all right jay come here i got you on multiple meetings today with all these investors I go, it's awesome i go you they, they want to meet with me he goes absolutely i was like cool so me and my chief operating officer this guy scott hoffman we go to the first meeting we sit down, it's like nine o'clock in the morning and we sit in this little tiny room in this hotel place, right? It's like a little, little area and there's like three investors and they're on their cell phone. They're like, this goes on the good. And they're like, not even paying attention. And we're like doing this presentation. And I leave the room and I said, this guy to go, I'm, I'm done. I'm not doing that again. He goes, oh, no, no, no. Those guys were just assholes. Let's go to the next one. Let's go to the next one. It was like, you know, 45 minutes later, same thing. Like no one's really paying attention. I'm like, uh-huh, uh -huh, sure. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I'm like, after two of those, I said, I'm out. I'm leaving right now. I, I'm like, I'm aggressive, right? It's like, I'm, I'm leaving, right? And he's like, no, no, no. He goes, think about it. Don't, no, let's not leave. Let's not leave. So he goes, he goes, let's go into the conference area where they had the, the, the stage and everybody there. There's hundreds of people in there. He goes, in the back, there's coffee. I'm just going to get a coffee. And I don't drink coffee. I don't need it. I'm too high strong. So I go back with him. Dude, you don't need coffee. coffee. Just, no, by the <laughs> <laughs> I go, I go back to him. He's sitting there drinking his coffee. And then the, the banker comes running over. He goes, what are you doing? You have a meeting in like two minutes. I go, I'm not doing the meeting. What do you mean you're not doing a meeting? These are my investors. I go, they're your investors? Well, I mean, I go, yeah. See, I'm understanding what's going on here. I go, what I'm seeing is that we come and go as the client, but we're really not the client. They're the client. And I don't like that. And he's like, what are you talking about? I, I set these up. I go, I get it. These are your relationships. You keep pitching them stuff all the time. I go, but I'm not here you know, to undress myself for everybody. If, they, if you really pitched them, they should set up a meeting and have a Zoom call with me. Well, back then it wasn't Zoom with Skype, but you should have a call with me and we could have an in-person meeting if it makes sense, if we're clicking. I go, I'm not feeling this. This doesn't feel authentic. They're looking at their phone the whole time, John. Oh, no, no, don't worry about it. I go, no, I'm not doing it, buddy. I'm out. His name was John too. I was like, I'm done. We're leaving. We're going back down to Jersey. We're in New York City. I go, I'm out of here. And he's like, oh my God. And Scott and him is like, Jay, calm down. And they're talking and I'm watching this guy on the stage. I'm staring this guy on the stage and they're, they're doing their banter and I'm listening to this. And then he starts, I go, shh, hold on. And they're talking. AOL's up there. Uh, Yahoo was up there. Next Star Broadcasting was up there. There was a moderator who was moderating the discussion. It was a fireside chat, right? And I go, I go, who's this guy on the stage? He goes, who? Oh, that's AOL. You said you don't want to talk to them because I told you old media. I said, no, no. I go, John, the guy from Next Star. I'm looking it up my phone. This is like a TV broadcasting company. This is what I told you about. And he goes, 
no, 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 no. They don't do these types of acquisitions. I go, he's literally talking about acquisitions right now. That is the name of this discussion, mergers and acquisitions for media companies. I get it, but he's only been there for six months. He has no clout, blah, blah, blah. I was like, what do you mean he has no clout? Politically within the organization. I'm going to buy this company. He goes, no, no. I go, John, I'm leaving. But before I leave, I'd like to talk to him or I'm going to find a new banker. <laughs> okay, I'll set it up. <laughs> he runs over there. The guys come off the stage. Everybody comes there. And he's like, come here, come here, come here. Then he waves me over. He's like, come here. We go downstairs. I said, let's go downstairs, if you don't mind, to the bar um, on the first floor. And he's like, oh, it's a little early for a drink. I said, I just want to talk to you for a few minutes. I go downstairs. I said, I heard you on the stage. You guys are trying, trying to get into digital. Now, he's the chief operating, sorry, the chief revenue officer. His name was Tom O'Brien of Nextar Broadcasting. And he was also the chief, uh, sorry, the, um, the, the, the president of digital, right? So he's president of digital, chief revenue officer. So it's like his like pet project for this TV sure. media company. He did like 20 something years at NBC. If you've heard of Chuck Scarbo, the guy on TV every night, he's the one that did his contracts every year for so many years. He, he told me all these stories. So I'm like, okay, I'm sitting down with him. I'm having a glass of water. He's having an iced tea. And I said, um, what's your revenue in digital? And he's like, what's that? I go, I'm just curious how much revenue you guys have. I can't imagine it's much, right? And he says, um, I didn't say that part, but he, and he says, um, I can't tell you that. I said, you're a public company. It's got to be in one of the 10Ks. I can go find it. And I'm sure you talk about an earnings call. Just tell me. And he's like, that's a good point. Um, and he gives me a number. I think it was like 50 million or something like that. 25, 30 million. I don't even remember. It was, it was, but where did, we did 25 million a year before. And so then I, I looked over at, at Scott and I said, okay, so what's your number? And he's like, what's my number? Does this guy want to know how much I'm worth? I go, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm saying, what's your target number? He's like, what are you talking about? I go, your revenue. I can't imagine. I'm the CEO of a small company. I, mean, I don't care if it was big. I'm bringing you in. I'm, I'm tasking you with a number. What's your goal that the CEO of Nextstar says, this is the goal. And I'm sure you have bonuses and everything tied to this shit. So what's your goal and what's the time horizon? He looks at Scott. He goes, this fucking kid. Okay. He goes, I don't, I don't need to answer that. I go, no, you don't. I go, would you like to know what my number is? And he's like, what's your target? I go, not my target. I go, I think I can get you closer to your goal. I go, you got to have a number. He's, he doesn't hire you. And he goes, it's a hundred million. Just like that. Like just quickly just says it was a hundred million. I said, interesting. We did 25 million last year. We'll do probably close to 40 this year. I get you to your number real quick. Don't you think <laughs> this guy was hook, line and sinker. John. He was like, okay, let me give you my car. We'll talk. I mean, from that point on, this guy just got in. He's, he's, the, he's the chief revenue officer. He's, his goal is to drive revenue and he's in charge of their digital initiative. Like, what are they doing in digital? It was like, at that point, I knew I had them hooked, but it was all about value at that point, right? They're not like an internet company. They're not paying high multiples. It had to be accretive for them as well. Um, they had to be able to buy it for less than what their multiple that they traded on the market was. And I think they traded at that time for like 12 times, maybe 11, 12 times, you know, their earnings. Um, so the negotiation was always like, well, we're an internet company. They're selling for 30, 40 times profit. And they're like, well, we don't pay that because our shareholders won't value it that way. Your revenue is like 1% of our overall revenue. It doesn't get baked in that way. And lots and lots of discussions that we had, but ultimately it was just very serendipitous, right? I was literally about to fire my banker and try to find a new banker. And then I, I see this guy and then it just evolves. And we were having discussions with private equity firms and some VCs as well as some potential buyers. But that was the one that made the most sense. That was when I read your book, that was my target buyer. He was literally right there. It was like served up on a freaking silver platter. I was like, there he is. I solve his problems and he solves my problems. Let's try to make this work. And your problem at the time was what exactly? Liquidity. It was just, I want that exit that I missed. I just wanted out. I was doing this from 2002 to 2014 at that point. 
That's a long time, right? And I had smaller exits, nothing to write home about, made money running the business, became a millionaire mm -hmm. running it, but I wasn't able to retire for the rest of my life. It wasn't like I had money I would die with, if that makes sense, you know? Because the business was thirsty for cash, presumably. You weren't, you weren't, you weren't dividing $5 million out personally a year. We did. You, you, you did dividend $5 million. Yep. So, so again, why not just keep- Because I saw things stop, right? When you see that you have this thing, you, I was very cognizant of the ability that the party could end tomorrow. Mm. It may not end tomorrow, but like you get a notice in the mail and it's effectively over, right? Because you I didn't want to go before. through that. Yeah, I didn't want to go through that again. And I also knew that I, the growth- when you're running a company, it's important to keep having a steady uh, percentage of growth moving forward, right? You got to mm -hmm. keep every year, you got to, because if you have erratic revenue that goes up and down, it doesn't look sustainable for to the buyer. It's got to look like, um, not that you're window dressing it, but you have to make the business have a steady growth, a predictable revenue, not just the product and the, and the services that you provide to be predictable revenue, but also the actual numbers, the, the, the gross numbers on a quarterly and annual basis. And we were growing quarter over quarter, year over year, every quarter, every year. Any disruption to that shows a fracture in the business to a potential buyer. So it's like, as you're running that business, you're like, okay, we don't want to have that happen because anything could disrupt that. And you can try to, anytime you try to say, well, it's because of the economy, this is not, it's just words, man. It scares the buyer. It's just noise. It spooks yeah. them. Yeah. You don't want to spook yeah. the buyers. You mentioned that you started this business with your wife, who was the number one sales rep in the former company. So obviously you've really knowledgeable about this space great salesperson. How did she influence your decision-making as it relates to this decision? You went to Lou and he said, two hats, investor versus you know, a friend of yours. Tell me the conversation you were having your wife at the time. So when we were ready to sign the definitive agreement, I, I had the papers in front of me. She has on documents. Scott's on the document. My investors got the documents, emailed this fandom back, and I didn't sign the document. Everybody signed. We got all the lawyer, all the um, investors, everybody to sign first. And that was the last signature. And it was me, Larry, Maurice, Kate, we're in my office. And it's like, I get emotional thinking about this. And I'm staring at this document and I'm just like, and I'm looking at it like, here it is. This is it. I signed this document. We're getting a wire transfer tomorrow. Like, this is it. Right. And I'm just like, and, uh, and Scott walks over to me, puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, if you don't want to do it don't do it. And I looked over at him and I was like, I want to do it. He goes, you seem like you have hesitation. Don't do it if you don't want to do it. Cause it wasn't meaningful to their lives. I own a majority of the business, right? My wife leans in and whispers to me and she goes, you know, you have to do this, but it's your call. Not because she wants me to, she knows I want to do it. And I sat there and I looked at that document probably a minute or two. And I was like, holy shit, do I really want to do this? To your point, I knew we were going to keep growing. I knew it. It's just this exogenous event that you don't know it could happen. It's happened to me. So when you've had that reality come true, I don't want to be the cause of the reason why my kids will not have this type of an outcome. I, I was fundamentally able to change the life of my descendants for some period of time, possibly forever. And I didn't want to be the cause of that not happening. Most people come from poverty. 99% of humanity has been poor, right? And this is something that always came through my head. My family has always been poor, right? As far back as there's any stories that I can know of, we've never had any money. We were just poor people like the rest of, them, rest of the world, not Americans, but the rest of the world. 
I have an ability to get escape velocity. I always use that term. It's funny you said that. This is escape velocity from a personal net worth perspective, but also for my kids and my grandkids and so on, depending on how we manage it. There's an old saying, you know, usually your your wealth gets disappears in two generations. Mm. I put a lot of precautions in that so it doesn't happen, but it still can. Um, But I I didn't want to be the cause of it never happening for them. And so it was here. I was going to fundamentally change their lives, my, my, my kids, right? Um, better education, healthcare, everything was there for us. Like if I say no to this, John, and something happens, I got to live with that. I wasn't the cause of the reason why it didn't happen the first time. I could have been the cause of it this time. It wasn't like I decided not to sell the company for $300 million with Lou and Aaron. We got sued before we had the definitive to sign. So I don't ever feel like we ever had it. In this case, I don't know how you live with that. I mean, you're going to have to, but it's a tough thing to swallow. That's a tough pill to swallow. I didn't want to be responsible for that. I signed the document. A tear was in my eye as I did it because I knew next year I'm just going to make seven or $8 million in the year, right? This is crazy. Like, what am I doing to your point? And I, ultimately I was like, I just can't take that risk. It was a risk it wasn't willing to take. It was an offer I really just knew I couldn't refuse. And it's also why they offered it, I think. They just knew based on my history and everything, this guy's going to take the offer. And my investors even said it. They're like, you got to do it, but I wish you wouldn't, but I, you got to do it. <laughs> How has it impacted your relationship with your wife since? You mean, because we, we sold the company or what do you mean? Yeah. I don't, I don't know what you mean by that. I mean, it's been great. I mean, we've, we have a great life. I wouldn't trade my life for anything. I love our lives. Um, our, our kids are healthy. We have four children now. Um, she focuses on the kids all the time. I now do my podcast. I'm writing a book. Um, I'm an angel investor. I don't think I ever want to be operational and running a business again. I don't think I need to do that anymore. Um, it's not something I'm really interested in doing these days. I can't say forever. Who knows, right? But where I'm at right now, my kids and life, going to soccer and all these different things. I do karate. I love my life right now. I'm otherwise healthy. You know, this is a good spot to be in in life. And I think we're both very, very happy with where we're at. Very well said. Did you shop? The company in a traditional sense, it sounds like you hired an M&A banker. He took you to this conference where you met the next star guy that was on stage. I get that. But did you, did your M&A banker sort of shop it in a traditional sense to other potential acquirers? Yeah, he did. The problem is it's the speed of which everybody gets to where they are. And one moved really quick, next star, and others were kind of dragging along. And you have to, this is a good question because you have to sit there and think to yourself, well, if I could just slow play next star, maybe we can get these others to catch up. But then you're taking a risk. They could always just walk away. And they were, they were pushing because they knew they were moving faster than others and they wanted to get it done. And again, I think it has a lot to do with that guy, Tom O'Brien, knowing I got to get this done. I have an opportunity to get this. And he gets it at an accretive transaction for them because he knows my backstory. He knows that if I give him this real offer, this guy can't say no. I think he knew that. And hmm. um, he played it well. He got a great transaction um, for Nexstar in terms of the price and the value at the time. It's phenomenal for them. And it was great for us too. It, it should have been better. We probably should have sold for over $100 million had we had more offers on the table simultaneously, but I just couldn't take that chance. And just sharing your story from the beginning, I get it totally. Like I, yeah. there's, I, I would do the same in your shoes a hundred times over. Especially, I, I bet you this, John, if history. I didn't have the previous company get sued, I would have just kept going. So there's mm-hmm. no question. I wouldn't have had that experience and understanding and and you know, uh, belief that it could go away. Because I think founders are irrationally, eternally optimistic by nature, right? Yeah. It's just, we believe that we can accomplish amazing things that statistically you shouldn't be able to do, but statistically you shouldn't be able to do them. You have to keep that in mind, right? So when it's there, 
you, it's like being at the poker table or the, or, or, or roulette. Like, do you really want to let it ride? How long do you want to let it ride? You know, I didn't want to keep letting it ride because I just was there and seen it before. And it just seemed like it was dangerous at that point. You know, I just kept thinking about my kids. Yeah. And you've got four of them to feed. So <laughs> two at the time. Yeah. <laughs> but now you got four. Yeah. Oh, We're done. Man. <laughs> no more kids. This was, uh, this was a fantastic conversation. I, uh, I learned a ton personally and, and I'm really grateful for you sharing it is where do people learn more about your podcast, the upcoming book is like, are you a LinkedIn guy or a Twitter guy? Like what's, what's the best way for people to reach out and connect with you? Most platforms. It's my name, J A Y G O U L D. So, um, that'd be like, you know, Twitter, I, I'm on Twitter. If you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm over there too. I do have a podcast that I have on various different podcast platforms for audio, but YouTube is a channel that I put most of my focus on. Um, just type in like my name in quotes, Jay Gould, but then you'll have to type in like docents or something like that because I share a name with the famous railroad baron, Jay Gould, not the same family, but so, so if you type in and just Jay Gould, you'll find is that the guy. name of the podcast, right? Yeah. Docents, D-O-C-E-N-T-S. So docents are guides, volunteer guides in museums and art galleries and universities and stuff. And, um, I just view highly successful overachievers as a docent because they are a guide. They inspire and influence people through their actions. So I've kind of redefined it in my own head. I call the guests on my show docents, which you're coming on my show. So you are one of my docents as well. Um, <laughs> well I'm grateful for that. I, I had I'm one of the guys on my show that was like, well, as a, as a kid, I went to the same high school as him. Al Leiter, he was a professional baseball player. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Three-time world series champion. Um, that was one of the coolest interviews for me because as a little kid, I remember him coming back to the elementary school and getting an autograph from him. It's like, this is so cool. You know, he's only like 10, 12 years older than me, but like as a kid, he's like a giant, you know, and sure. he's he actually, he's a giant. He's a pretty big, tall guy, but his son actually just after he did the interview, like two weeks later, he just got picked up as a number one draft pick in the MLB draft. Yeah. Um, he was a Vanderbilt cool. Commodore, as I understand, right. and one of the best pitchers, the best pitcher maybe with Kumar Rocker in the graduating class. So amazing, right. uh, amazing story. So yeah, so, so, cool. I, so you can find me there. You can find me there. I do, I do podcasts and, um, and then I'm an angel investor too. Awesome. So Jay Gould on all the social platforms, Docents is the name of the podcast. Check it out on YouTube. Um, thanks for doing this. It was awesome. Thanks, John. And I appreciate you. And I think everybody, you haven't read his book, read the book. It definitely changed the, the, the direction of my company because it refocused us on what mattered so that we can productize the business. And we ultimately sold the business, I think, because of that. And also thinking about who the end solution buyer was. And frankly, if I never sold it to your point, John, I would have had a great sustainable business either way. I just didn't want to oh, take the risk. It's a great endorsement. Thanks I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Thank you. All right. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. 
If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.